Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I will be reading from the ESV, the, verse, the first 28 verses. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are all still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not rise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is, <clears throat> it is plain that he is expected, I'm sorry. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Good morning to each of you. It is good to gather in the house of the Lord this morning to remember, to celebrate the glorious resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a big deal. It's a very big deal. We will understand more, I hope, this morning why it's such a big deal from this passage in 1 Corinthians. Before we begin our study 
Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving. We are grateful that you did not leave your son Jesus uh, in the tomb, but that he burst forth in resurrection power. And we are grateful for your grace to us, that you have offered us this same power, that we could live an abundant life, both now and forever with you in your heaven. And I pray this morning you would use your word, that you would use me as your messenger to impress upon us once again the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the power that is yours in the resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage has three parts. The first part is verse, verses 1 through 11, which I'm going to use for the introduction. The body of the sermon is going to come from verses 12 to 20. And the conclusion will come then from verses 21 to 28. The question is sometimes asked by Christians and non-Christians alike, why is Easter such a big deal? What's all the fuss about? What difference does it make, really? Well, in this passage, the Apostle Paul tells us what difference it makes, and he points out the difference right here at the beginning. He says that the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ is what the gospel hinges upon. This is of first importance. And he wants to remind the Corinthian church and us about this gospel, this good news that hinges on this reality, this event, this fact of the resurrection. This event is the defining moment in all of human history. It's an extraordinary event. And we have the privilege this morning of hearing again, of being reminded again, as he says, of this gospel which has been preached, been preached by very ordinary people, very ordinary men and women, but it's an extraordinary message. It's an extraordinary event, an extraordinarily defining moment in history. But it's more than just a defining moment. It's more than just a fact of history. This is an ongoing reality that affects every facet of our lives as Christians. This resurrection is the basis upon which we stand in hope in verse 1 and by which we are being saved. Now it is possible, it seems, to believe the facts of the resurrection and not be saved. There are some people, quite a few people perhaps, who believe the facts of the resurrection. But they do not love the one who was resurrected. And so their faith is in vain. They believe in vain. So this morning the question for us is, do we love the one who is resurrected? Does this story, does this event, this defining moment in history, does it move us? Does it affect us? 
Does it change our allegiance? Does it change our passion, our hope, our life? If not, then we can believe all the facts, but we believe in vain. The very nature of this resurrection is that it changes things. It changed things over 2,000 years ago in that little village, city, halfway around the world, and it changes things today, changes things here and now. The facts are important, however. The facts are very important. The facts are so important that this passage, in this passage, the Apostle Paul goes to great length to explain the documentation, to, to explain the eyewitnesses to the reality of this resurrected Jesus. And he says that this was predicted by the Old Testament Scriptures and that things happened according to the Scriptures. This wasn't an accident. This didn't just happen in a haphazard way. The events of Christ's life, His birth, His death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension were all predicted in great detail in the Old Testament by the prophets. And we have recounted some of those prophecies already this weekend. And it's astounding to me as I read. Because those men who wrote those Old Testament passages probably didn't even know what they were writing. But they were writing about an event that would happen some decades later, precisely as it was to be. And Jesus himself, when he was hanging there on the tree, was quoting from and referring to those Old Testament passages. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. And then he appeared, it says, to the twelve, to those of his disciples. And then he appeared to more than 500 people at once. So if you didn't want to believe the, the 12 disciples, if you thought they were in cahoots with each other and they had this story all nailed down, well, that doesn't explain the 500 people who also saw Jesus. And then the other apostles. We don't know how many there were. One is referenced here by name. His name is James. Might have been the brother of Jesus. And then, last of all, to the apostle Paul himself. The Lord appeared on the road to, to Damascus in that bright light. And then when the Apostle Paul went to the desert for a period of three years, we think he might have had some interaction there with Christ as well. We don't know for sure. But in any case, the person of Jesus, resurrected and raised, is a historical, documented, witnessed fact. And facts are important. This supernatural reality, this supernatural event, this power that raised Christ from the dead, is available to us. Available toward us in the grace of God. The Apostle Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. This grace of God, this, this power that comes from the resurrection, is directed towards us, towards men, towards unworthy men. Even men like the Apostle Paul who persecuted the church, who were intent on destroying the church. And that power, that grace, arrested him. That same grace and power arrests us today. That same grace enables 
unworthy men, like the Apostle Paul, like myself, like each one of us, to proclaim this extraordinary message. And it enables unworthy people to believe it and to be changed by it. You see, this isn't just about the credibility of the messenger. It's not about the credibility of the recipients of the message. This is about the credibility of the message. About the credibility of the God who created this message. Who designed this from the very beginning. And so we preach. And so you believed. But while the resurrection is the pinnacle of the gospel, while it is that which the gospel hinges upon, and while it is universally celebrated among Christians all over the world, it is still a reality that defies human categories. It's still a reality that is cast into doubt by skeptics. It's a well-known fact that from the beginning there were skeptics. There were doubters. On Easter Sunday, when the chief priests heard that the tomb was empty, they called the men who had been guarding the tomb. And they offered them money to say that the disciples of Jesus had come and stolen the body away. We could call that the original Easter conspiracy. And there have been many more since. The years pass, decades and generations and centuries come and go. Every time across the centuries, the ultimate point of attack on Christianity has always been right here at the empty tomb. The resurrection, the truth behind Easter Sunday. Now in contrast to that, Good Friday doesn't pose this sort of problem. Because the world understands death. We know what death is. Death is forever with us. We cannot escape it. The funeral homes will never go out of business. Because we are a death-sentenced people. Just read the obituaries. Every day they're there. Now the names change, but the obituaries don't go away. The obituaries are a constant in our world because people keep dying. Mostly older people, yes. Sometimes younger. Sometimes very young. But no one can claim an exemption. So the world does not struggle with the idea that 2,000 years ago, in a remote province at the edge of the Roman Empire, a man named Jesus of Nazareth died. We can accept that. We can reckon with that. We can understand that. Death happens to all of us eventually. That Jesus died is not a problem for most people. Even that he died a cruel and harsh and terrible death at the hands of the Jews and Romans does not pose a crisis of belief. Many people have died such terrible deaths. Maybe even worse. For far lesser crimes, or no crime at all. But the world has enormous problems with Easter. Because the world knows nothing about resurrection. We have a category for death. We know what that is. 
If we see a hearse with cars following it in a procession, we know what that's all about. But we have no category for rising from the dead. So let me ask a question that I asked at the beginning. Why is the resurrection such a big deal? What difference does Easter make? Well, suppose we switch the question around and we ask it this way. What difference would it make if Jesus had not risen from the dead? What would be different in our world today if we found out conclusively that Jesus was still dead? Or how about this? What if someone conclusively proved that they had discovered the bones of Jesus? What difference would that make? Would that, what difference would that make to you, personally? Now that question might sound shocking. It might even border on blasphemous. But I still want to ask it. I want us to think this morning. What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Seven times here in verses 12 to 19, the Apostle Paul uses the little word if. He is raising the question of contrary assumption in order to show us how much hangs on this, how much depends on this bodily resurrection of Christ. To borrow a common figure of speech, this is the whole ball of wax. This is it. Everything rides, everything rises and falls on this truth, this fact, this event. For those of you from further south, instead of saying the whole ball of wax, you would probably say the whole enchilada. But whichever it is, this is it. And Paul plays the devil's advocate, if you will, in order to teach us what matters most. But he's not trying to play a game here. He's not trying to waste our time. He's not debating trivial matters. We need to be reminded that an outstanding miracle, a supernatural fact, lies at the heart of our faith. We believe something absolutely incredible. That a man who is dead came back to life on the third day. We believe that God raised him from the dead. That's an incredible thing to say. Sometimes we, we Christians forget how amazing this really is. We take it for granted. We've, many of us have grown up with this reality in our minds. It's been taught to us from the time we were wee children. But we forget how incredible this is, how amazing this is. After all, if you go to the cemetery and you stay there waiting for a resurrection, you're going to wait a very, very long time. There are lots of people coming in and nobody going out. You see plenty of funerals, but no resurrections. What are the chances that a man who had been tortured and beaten and crucified, and then buried in a tomb in the earth, would be raised from the dead. What are the chances of that? I would say the odds are not too good. 
So we can't start with what we can see with our eyes or what we can figure out with human reasoning or observation of scientific principles. None of that works here. This is something else. And we can't trust our feelings in this either because our emotions can play tricks on us. We must trust God. We must come to this passage and be calm and clear-headed as we read it. It's as if, just for a moment, the Apostle Paul says, okay, let me leave the church. Let me stand on the outside looking in. And let me ask the question, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? What if Easter really isn't true? One man called that the world's blackest assumption. And it is. What if? What if? Paul answers that question by showing us six disastrous consequences if Christ did not rise from the dead. Each one of these deserves our careful attention. Because if these things are true, because these things are true if the resurrection is false, this would be the alternative to the resurrection. So let's look at these six things. First of all, he says in verse 14, if Christ was not raised from the dead then our preaching is in vain. The word vain means senseless, useless, that which produces no results. There's no effect. It would be like a promise with no fulfillment. It would be like a trip with no destination, like a story with no end, like a seed that produces no crop, a dream that never comes true, a game with no winners or a business with no products. Empty, useless, vain. There would be no reason to preach because preaching wouldn't change anything anyway. Secondly, he says, if Christ was not raised, faith in Christ would be useless, would be vain. So our faith would not produce anything either. No point in preaching, no point in believing. If the resurrection hadn't happened, our faith in Christ would be pointless. There would be no power of grace, no change, no results. We might as well believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny if Christ had not been raised. At least that way we could get some good feelings and some sweets to eat. Might be some benefit there. But if Christ had not been raised... Our preaching would be in vain and our faith in vain. Thirdly, Christ had not been raised. All the witnesses and the preachers of the resurrection would be liars, would be frauds, would be crooks. The apostles, even the apostle Paul, would be a fraud. He says we would be a liar, liars if this was not true. All the witnesses, all the 500 and more, All of them would be false witnesses. All the preachers and men and women of God that you look up to and respect, all of them nothing but liars and crooks and frauds. Fourthly, if Christ had not been raised, we would still be in our sins. Verse 17. This would be even more disastrous for us personally. 
this disastrous reality that if Christ had not been raised, we would still be in our sins. Your faith would be futile, would be vain. You would still be wallowing in your sins with no hope of change ever. And if you were still in your sins, your world would still be broken and messed up with no hope of recovery. Your position before God would be one of estrangement, one of wrath, not love and mercy. Your end would be suffering and death and punishment. There would be no forgiveness for the terrible mistakes that all of us have made. That is the great issue here in the Apostle Paul's mind. Are we truly forgiven or not? Or do we have to carry the weight, the burden, the guilt, the shame of our sin with us to our end? And the answer is, if Christ has been raised, yes, we have forgiveness of sins. But if Christ was not raised, the answer is no. It's all yours forever. Furthermore, if Christ had not been raised, there would be no life after death. If Christ had not been raised, then nobody else could either. For if God couldn't raise His own Son, how's He going to raise anybody else? There would be no reason to rejoice and hope when our loved ones die. What shall we say about their future? Is this the end? Will we ever see them again? Paul's answer is very clear. If Christ has not been raised, death wins. If he is still in the tomb, there is no hope for anyone. This life is all there is. And all who are dead will stay dead forever. Gone. Perished. The end. And if that were the case, then we would be the most pitiable people on earth. If the only possible good that Christianity ever hoped to accomplish was for this life only, then we might as well quit while we are ahead. For Paul, this is the ultimate argument because he means that if Christ is not raised, we are just fooling ourselves. If Christ is still in the tomb, then Richard Dawkins is right, Christopher Hitchens is right. And all the rest of the skeptics are right if Christ is not raised. If there is no foundation to our faith, then we are nothing but self-deluded fools. And we are of all men most miserable, most to be pitied. If Christ is not raised, then we have no message to preach. If Christ is not raised, there is no God to hear our prayers. If Christ is not raised, we are not saved. If Christ is not raised, then let's bring the missionaries home. If Christ is not raised, let's close the church house, sell the property. Let's go home. If Christ is not raised, then every Christian for over 2,000 years has been wrong. That's what Paul means. Sometimes well-meaning Christians say something like, well, even if it's not true, it's still better to be a Christian. Think of all those things you gain by being a Christian. You have Jesus in your heart. No, you don't. 
Not if he's not raised. Not if he's dead, you don't. All of the benefits of Christianity, everything that is valuable and good to us in this life and the next hinges upon this matter of resurrection. If he's still in the tomb, you don't have him in your heart. If he's still in the tomb, then you're just playing religious games. If he's still in the tomb, it's not better to be a Christian. Now, I've put it in pretty stark terms this morning because that's how the Apostle Paul puts it right here in this passage. He doesn't play games. I don't want to play games either. I don't want to come to the end of my life and discover that I've preached something that isn't true. And I don't want to mislead others into thinking that something is true when it's not. If Christ is still dead, then we deserve the pity of thoughtful men and women because we have believed a lie. That is the reality of the what if. So we come to the end of Paul's ifs. What if Christ had not been raised? What if Christ was still in the tomb? Then preaching Christ would be senseless. Faith in Christ would be useless. All the witnesses and preachers of the resurrection would be liars and crooks and frauds. We would still be in our sins. There would be no life after death. Christians would be the most miserable, pitiable people on earth. If. If. Is there any answer? Is there any hope? Is there any reason to believe in the resurrection of the dead? And here's Paul's answer in verse 20. Clear as a bell, bright as the sun, truth with no mixture of doubt, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Consider how much hangs on that. Consider how much hangs on that verse, on that certainty, on that fact. Those three little words, but in fact. The resurrection of Jesus, our coming resurrection, the resurrection of all those who died in faith, all of it depends on that. Now the term first fruits here refers to the first part of a harvest. For the Israelites, it meant the first part of the barley harvest that was offered to the Lord. It was a happy day when you offered your first fruits because it meant that there was a bigger harvest to come. There was more coming. This was just the first fruits. Even so, the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago is God's way of saying, one day, all my children will raise from the dead. Not one of them will be left in the grave. Every single one will be raised. And we can look forward. We can look forward with anticipation to the day when all things will be fully and completely reconciled to God. Because Christ will have achieved, it says, rule and authority and dominion over everything. 
He will have put all enemies under his feet. He will have become the final victor over death, over the grave, over Satan, and all the powers of darkness. And everything will be in God. Consistent with God's purposes from the beginning. The resurrection of Christ is the down payment. It is the security deposit, if you will. The first fruits. Guaranteeing the complete rule of Christ over death and sin at the final judgment when all will be brought into subjection under God. And then the Son will say to the Father, I have completed the harvest. Here is everything and everybody that we have created, that we have bought and paid for. It's all yours. My question for you today is where are you going to be on that day? Are you going to willingly surrender to this Jesus now? Are you going to respond to this miraculous event of history in faith that loves? Or are you going to be put under subjection in that day? The question is not if you are going to bow the knee. The question is when. That's why the resurrection is all important. Easter is God's great amen to Good Friday. On the cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished. And God said, Amen when he raised his son from the dead. And because he is alive forevermore, we can know that our sins are forgiven and we can live with him forever. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. I'd like for us to sing a hymn for our benediction. After the hymn, you are dismissed.